Hey friends, we are in week three of our series dedicated to Christianity's most ancient shared statement of faith, the Apostles' Creed. Now remember, the goal here for us is simple. In a world full of deception and lies and fake news, what we want to do as a church is learn truth to try to really know what it is that we say we believe so that we're not deceived or played in this very divisive culture we find ourselves in. Now, the Apostles' Creed, it began circulating within the first few centuries after the birth of Jesus' church, and it came about to serve the same purpose for the early church that it can and should for our church, to define truth, to correct error, to connect us to the faith of our fathers, to summarize what it is we believe, and then to define the Christian unity, the principles upon which we as followers of Jesus are, un- are going to unite. Now, what we've been doing each week so far, and I'm going to ask you to join me in doing it again today, is to recite the Apostles' Creed together. So at home, from your couch, let's read it together with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, if you were with us in week one, we looked at who the creed says that God is, that he's not simply God Almighty, but God the Father Almighty. Big difference. If you missed that, I want you to go back and check it out. Week two, we began to focus on the central character of this shared statement of faith, Jesus. And the three titles that the creed affirms from, that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's one of his titles. It means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One. And hopefully, by looking into some history, we came to a new understanding of what it meant then and what it means now to call Jesus those other two things. Those two things were the only Son of God and our Lord. Now, week three. Week three, we keep the focus on Jesus, right? But, but week three introduces us to the third person of the triune God that the creed affirms, the Holy Ghost, more often referred to as the Holy Spirit. We believe the creed reveals that there is one God who is infinitely perfect and he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to get to the Trinity and all of the questions that it brings up, and we're going to get to the role of the person of the Holy Spirit in a few weeks, but today I want to stick with what the Creed is revealing to us, what it's affirming for us about the nature of Jesus. You see, last week we looked at at his titles, right? We looked at Jesus' power and his position. Today, I want to look at his essence. See, Jesus' essence matters. I had a friend when I used to work back in the banking world, and there was this little greasy spoon diner next door. We used to go to it every morning and get some coffee. And, you know, we were in our late 20s, early 30s at this point, and, and, and at that age, maybe you're there now or maybe you remember it, you know, your eyesight starts to get a little crazy, a little wonky, and uh, some of us are quick to, to kind of uh, adapt to that and go out and get some contacts or glasses. 
Others, not so much. And I had this friend, Eugene, and Eugene couldn't see more than 10 feet in front of him, but Eugene refused to go and get glasses. And one day we were waiting in line for our coffee and Eugene kept pointing to this person. He goes, look at the rug on that guy. And I'm like, what? He goes, the hairpiece, look at the hairpiece on that guy. And, and I couldn't figure out who he was talking about. So finally, he was getting frustrated with me because I wasn't laughing along at, at, at this poor guy with him. And so I said, I, I don't know who you're talking about, Huge. who is it? And he points to this guy. The guy was wearing one of those big hunting winter hats. That's how bad his eyesight was. See, when we get identities mixed up, right, it can be funny, for that, that story at the time, we died laughing about it. But when we misidentify people, things can also get downright dangerous. That's why this creed goes out of its way to ensure that we understand the identity, the person of Jesus. Now we just read it aloud. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Guys, what we just affirmed it is perhaps the most remarkable statement of faith ever made. We're actually gonna be celebrating this in a couple of months. This statement is the statement about the incarnation of God. Think about it, God Almighty, the infinite, all-powerful, as we discussed in week one, God the Thunderer, God the Overpowerer, choosing to leave heaven and come to earth in the form of a helpless baby. I mean, if you think the resurrection of Jesus is an extraordinary event, and it is, what would you call the incarnation? I mean, how could this be? I, in fact, it's actually so hard to believe. Jesus' disciple John felt he had to testify to it, to give it some authenticity and some validity. Here's what he wrote. John said that that which was from the beginning, I'm gonna pause here, Jesus has always existed. Jesus did not come into existence on Christmas Day. That was the day of his incarnation. John says, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, Jesus. He says, the life appeared. Again, we've seen it. And we testify to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He goes on, we proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He goes, we write this to make our joy complete. What is John saying? He's going, look, I know, I can't believe it either. But I'm here to tell you that, that a lot of us have seen and heard and touched God. Let me repeat that. John goes, I'm telling you, I've seen and heard and touched God. He's saying that, that the invisible has become visible. The absolute has become particular. The ideal has been made real. The divine has put on human clothes. How, how did that happen? Is it even possible? 
Well, I'm actually working on a series of talks for this upcoming Christmas that's gonna explore the seeming impossibility of this concept of a virgin birth. So we're gonna look at that in a few weeks. But today, I don't, I want, I don't wanna explore the why. I wanna explore the how, or excuse me, not the how, but the why. Why was Jesus conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary, and why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate? I was in Lowe's last week. Joan and I went in to pick something up, and I have to tell you, right there in the front lobby, it looked like Christmas had exploded. And I know the Hallmark Channel is about to do the very same thing. My mother-in-law and my daughter can't wait. And since everybody else has jumped into the uh, Christmas spirit, why don't we at least for this morning join along? Because I want to show you from what we would say is the Christmas story, where this line that the creed is, is, is speaking of, where it's coming from, what it's based off of. Now, the story of Jesus' birth is found in both Matthew and Luke in two of the four Gospels in your New Testament. I'm going to go with Luke's version for today because Luke, well, he was a first century physician. He was an educated man, and he set out to do research on Jesus. Luke ranks as a first-class historian, and his goal was to write an orderly account of who Jesus was, his ministry, life, death, and his resurrection. And so Luke's research and his interviews, they coalesce and they come together, and this is what all of his work revealed about the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. He writes, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Well, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin, third time. I think they're trying to get that point across. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Hey guys, that last line, verse 37, it's often translated in a lot of other versions. For nothing will be impossible with God. And based on this story, what the angel just said to Mary I guess not. Now, remember, last week, one of Jesus' three titles, right? It was Christ, not his last name, his title. That comes from the Hebrew word meaning the Messiah, the Savior. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, is coming to save his people. Now, maybe you've seen the, the bumper stickers on cars, Jesus saves, or you've heard Christians referring to, to being saved. The question is, from what? Well, Matthew in his birth narrative, he addresses exactly that. He records that an angel of the Lord came to, to Joseph, Mary's yet-to-be husband, and here, here's what the angel said to Joseph. He said, you're to give him, the baby, the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That word in the Greek there, save, 
It means, well, it means exactly what you think it means. He will save means that he will rescue his people from, his, from their sins. He will deliver out of danger his people from their sins. You see, and the creed speaks to this, guys. Our sins need forgiving, but we need saving. And why is that? Well, because there's a simple relationship between what the Bible describes as sin and what it does to everything it touches. Sin and death. Sin kills things. Everything sin touches dies. Cheat on your wife, marriage dies. Gossip about your friend, relationship dies. Steal from your parents, trust dies. Sin kills everything it touches. And according to the Christian worldview, our story, sin has touched all of us. That's why we all die. Look, early on in our shared story, right, into a world that God had declared all good, our first relatives, Adam and Eve, they chose, when given the choice to go their own way, to do just that, to be their own gods, despite God warning them that it would result in death. But see, it wasn't just their death. Sin and its penalty, death, it became a generational curse. I mean, you might have your mom's nose and your dad's wit, but we all have Adam's broken, sinful, rebellious nature. Every single one of us. The Apostle Paul explained it to the church in Rome this way. He said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all share this broken nature. We all have it in common. This is why all of us die. I got it from my dad who got it from his dad who got it from his dad before him. Sinner begat sinner begat sinner all the way back through time. And everybody knows this. Every human being who's ever lived has had something inside us that intuitively kind of says that something, something is not right. There is within all of us this, this emptiness, this feeling of lostness, this sense of, of guilt or shame or shortcoming. This is why every religion on earth has a creed or a statement of faith that has something to do with those feelings. Something to do with forgiveness and salvation. Every one of them, Islam, Hinduism, the Jewish faith, every great religion has the quote, how to get right with God, peace. Our creed does too, but here's where ours is different. Our creed says there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God. God has made each of us right by his own doing and by his own will. Did you catch who sent the angel Gabriel to Mary? Luke writes that God did. It was God's initiative. Mary asked, how is this going to be since I am, for the third time, a virgin? Which, look, great question, right? Mary's thinking like normal human beings. She's going, look, I did not do, I have not done what needs to be done by me to be pregnant. And the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary, you don't have to do anything. God has initiated this work. God will do this. God will fulfill this. 
So guys, when the creed says that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, what the creed is affirming is, is twofold. The first is that this work of saving is God's work. It's not ours. It's his idea. It's not ours. And it's his initiative. It's not ours. Now the second reason is the answer to the how question. How does Jesus save us from our sins? I mean, there have been plenty of good teachers and wise men who've lived moral, outstanding lives. But none of them, it's been said of none of them, none of them have been capable of saving anyone from their sins. The answer to why Jesus is different is found when the creed affirms what Mary revealed, that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, I don't know how much you keep up on religious topics, but I will tell you that recently the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus has come under some significant attack. Lots of critical thinkers have been advocating that we just kind of move on from this piece of the creed, just kind of pluck it out. I think that they would argue, look, it's number one, it's hard to believe. Um, it can't be proved. It's, it's a stumbling block for some folks coming to faith. And since it's not really necessary, why don't we just drop it? You know, just let it go. Let's make the creed more believable. Guys, I, I got to tell you, I get that. I get that it's hard to believe. And again, in a few weeks at Christmas time, I'm going to tell you why you should believe it. But more importantly, what I want you to know and understand is that Jesus' virgin birth, and, and I don't know why we call it a virgin birth. It was really his virgin conception. It's Jesus' virgin conception which qualifies him to save us from our sins and to be our advocate, our champion, the one pleading for each of us before the throne of God. Let me explain. See, the virgin birth is necessary. It's critical because if Jesus were conceived, well, the old-fashioned way, if Joseph was the father or if somebody else in Nazareth was his father, and I'm sure many people on the streets of that day assume that, well, then Jesus, well, he's just fully man because man begets man. And if Jesus was conceived not by the Holy Ghost, not by God's initiative, then Jesus has well, Jesus has a sin problem too, the same one that you and I do. His nature would be as broken as ours. I mean, sure, by all accounts, he lived a remarkably better, more moral life than most of us. But if Jesus is only human, then he still has that same sinful nature that's been handed down from Adam. And if that is true, then Jesus dying well, his death has no ability to atone for anybody's sin. His death would be due to his own sinful nature, no different than ours. It would just be as natural as anybody else's. Jesus' death on the cross, while tragic and sad and undeserved, would be no different than the death of any martyr before him. His death was the punishment due his own sin. But the scriptures affirm over and over and over again that Jesus is sinless in action, in thought, and in personhood. I can give you uh, some examples. Peter, Jesus' disciple, wrote, and he's quoting the prophet Isaiah about the Savior that would come. Peter says, and, and Peter would know, he walked with Jesus. He says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, which is what made John, another disciple, conclude, 
but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. By the way, it wasn't like God was in heaven for thousands of years and then suddenly had a good idea about Jesus. Jesus is is as eternal as God. He is God. John opens his gospel with that idea. He writes, in the beginning was the Word, that's that's who who he's referring to there is Jesus, the Word of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. And his virgin conception was not a new revelation, but it's as ancient as time itself. For as soon as the fall of man takes place in the garden, Listen to what God spoke to the deceiver. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I'm not going to turn this into an eighth grade sex ed ed class, but here's what I will say. I'm going to simply leave it at this. Women don't have seed But God speaks of one who's to come who will crush the head of the enemy of man and it will be one who is from the seed of a woman. You see that that virgin conception of Christ, it's not fanciful. It's necessary for our salvation. If Jesus died for his own sin, then we're still in ours. We still owe a debt to sin. And my friends, sin kills. But Peter explains it perfectly when he writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you and your unrighteous pastor to God. Which is why when we recite that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, we should almost pause and and, and reflect and not rush by that part. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered. He was beaten and whipped and mocked, spat upon, humiliated, and slaughtered. Jesus did not just die. Jesus suffered. Jesus experienced the full wrath, the full anger and justice of God that is due every sin of every man and he suffered not for anything he had done but for everything we had done, everything that you have done, everything that I have done, Jesus suffered for you and for me. Peter wrote that we were redeemed, quote, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus, the lamb of God, without blemish, Right? What's, he, what's Peter talking about there? Due to his virgin birth, right? Jesus suffered just like every sacrifice that had ever been given in the temple before him. All of those were, were perfect lambs, spotless lambs. Jesus in his sinless nature was perfect and uh, spotless. He suffered and he did it innocently on your behalf. So when we say that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the virgin we're stating a core principle of our faith that Jesus was not just a good man, but that Jesus was God, fully, holy, completely divine. God in a bod. But when we say that he was born of the Virgin Mary, 
Well, we're also emphasizing the second part of Jesus' nature, which was just as necessary. Jesus, and this is what makes our faith different than every other faith, Jesus is both in nature, fully God, and completely human. He is both God and man. Now, Jesus has always been God. We've seen that. He, he was there with God, and, and he created everything that's been created. Jesus did not become a human being until he was conceived in Mary, the incarnation. And again, his humanity is as necessary as his deity. In fact, remember, the creed helps to correct error. There was, when John was writing his epistles to the churches, there was a heretical teaching circulating in the church to the effect that Jesus was not a man, he was only God. This heresy became known as um, docetism. So serious was this denial of truth about Christ. Here's what John wrote. John was serious that we understand that Jesus was both man and God. John wrote, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the, let me read that back. And every spirit which does not, does not confess that he came in the flesh, is not of God. John says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. You hear that? John understood that to deny Jesus' humanity was to deny something at the very heart of Christianity. So that nobody who denies that Jesus had come in the flesh was sent from God, that message is is the anti-God message. Jesus' humanity is as critical as his deity in order to be our Savior. Why? Well, Paul explained it to the Galatians this way. He said, when the time had fully come, right, when it was just the right time, right when the Roman Empire existed and there was roads and all of that, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. There's that adoption principle we talked about. See, guys, only a human could be born under the law. What is the law? That's the commandments God had given to Israel. No animals were born under the law. God didn't expect my my dog Moose to keep the commandments. No angelic beings were born under the law. Only humans are born under the law. And only a human being could redeem other human beings born under the same law. Why? Because born under the law of God, all human beings are guilty of transgressing it. Only a perfect human could perfectly keep the law and perfectly fulfill it, thereby redeeming us. See, Jesus had to be human in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The law had to apply to him. And he fulfilled it, all of it, making him the perfect atoning sacrifice for us. Jesus was fully God, and he was fully human. Now, I can list for you more reasons that it's important that Jesus also be fully human. I mean, think about it, right? His his humanity, this is kind of a cool one, it allows him to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. His humanity allows for him to be our example and our pattern in life. We can look at Jesus in his humanity and see how it is we in our humanity should live. 
I'll give you another one. His humanity means that Jesus is the pattern for what our redeemed bodies will look like. Jesus will always be into eternity, fully human. See, if you want to understand what you're going to look like in heaven, right? If you want to know what your redeemed body is going to look like, let me break it to you. You're not going to have wings and harps in heaven. If you want to get a feel for what your body's going to look like in heaven, look at what Jesus' resurrected body was like. No wings, but, but what is most interestingly and, and, and critically important is this. See, Jesus being fully human, guys, fully human, well, it means that Jesus was fully human. Walk with me through this. That means Jesus got hungry and tired and cranky and angry. Jesus ate and then he pooped. He drank and then he peed. Jesus had B.O. Now, I know that sounds blasphemous, but it's true. In fact, let me rock your world a little bit more. The writer to the Hebrews wrote that Jesus, quote, has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You name the temptation, Jesus experienced it. Heck, his ministry kicks off with Satan taking him to the desert for for days upon days to tempt him. Jesus was tempted to do all of the things you and I are, to to cut corners, to take shortcuts, to cheat, to gossip, to drink, to lust. He was tempted, just like you and I are. He felt the pull of those things, yet he did not sin. But do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? It means that he gets us he gets you, he, he, he gets me, he, he understands. He, Jesus knows what it's like to be tired and cranky. He knows what it's like to be tempted to do every single thing that you wind up doing. He felt the urge. You do not have, we do not confess in the creed a God who looks down in disgust from on high. We confess a God who has come down low, who has condescended to us. The scriptures call him Emmanuel, God with us. We confess a God that knows, that understands. He feels it, he gets you. And even in all of it, he, and maybe this is what allows it, he loves you and he died for you. This is so important to understand. I, I had a young man call me this week, super kid, off at college. And this young guy loves God like crazy. But, you know, he's in college, and, well, you know, it's not easy following Jesus in college. I remember when I was coming to faith, it was in college, and I remember just wrestling with Jesus in a stairwell one time, just kind of crying out, could you please leave me alone until college is over? There may be no more temptation-oriented time in our lives than those first four years away from home. And so my friend and I were talking, and he was sharing with me about some of the things that that were going on at school. And and as he did, I could just hear the, the heaviness in his voice, how disappointed he was in himself. And 
and the fear of God that had crept in because of his disobedience and, and the temptations that he had fallen to. And again, this is a wonderful kid. He is a good and godly young man. But he was just racked with, with guilt and disappointment and worry. Honestly, I think if I had just pushed him far enough, he kind of, he kind of intimated that he, he was just about the point where he just wanted to throw in the towel and say, I can't do it. I, I can't do it. I give up. And that's when he got it right. I said, I agree with you. You, you can't do it. See, I, I told him, if you want to live under the law, you're exactly right. You're going to die under the law. If that's how you're going to approach God, then, well, you should be full of shame and you should be full of fear because that's what life under the law feels like. That's what a relationship with God feels like when it's lived under the law. But, I, I, but, what? I mean, what if there was a man, a, a simple and humble man who came and was born under that same law but somehow he kept it. And instead of receiving his just reward from God, what if instead he exchanged what, what he was due, glory, reward, and eternal life, what if he exchanged it for what my friend felt that he was due? What if that meant that the law, since it had been satisfied for him, what if it meant that now he was free from it? and all of the guilt and the shame and the fear that came with it. I asked him, I said, if you really believe that, would that change the way that he felt about himself, about God, about his relationship with God? See, the writer to the Hebrews sure thought it would. Here's the full quote about Jesus. He wrote, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, there's that title again, let us hold firmly, not to the law, but to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Could you imagine walking up to God's throne with confidence? Not fear, not shame, not worry. He concludes, and, and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, I, I think, I think it's, it's when you fully start to get this, when you fully understand it, I think Paul was in this spiritual mode when he, when he wrote this. He said, with all of these things in mind, what then shall we say in response? If God's for us, if he's our advocate, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies God initiated it. God's doing it. Who's the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also, listen to this now, interceding for us. You get that? Like right now. 
For all who have repented and believed, all who have confessed with their mouths and believed in their hearts that Jesus is Lord, right now, at this moment, today, Jesus is at the right hand of God and he's looking over and going, hey dad, you see that friend of John's that he's talking about there at college over there, dad? Dad, I, I know how hard those temptations are. I mean, I felt them, dad. I faced them. I get it. I get him. And dad, I, I willingly paid the price for the times he's dropped the ball. He's mine. He's in me. I got him, dad. You know, he's doing that right now for you too. This morning in heaven, Jesus is not accusing you. He's defending you. He's talking you up. He's telling his dad all about you. Your childhood, what your dad said, what your mom did, what that guy in college did to you, what your coworkers been spreading around about you. I mean, Jesus understands these things. He gets how those things have impacted you and, and hurt you. And he gets why sometimes you still act out of that pain or, or you, you live out those lies. You know why? Because Jesus was talked about and lied to and tempted to react in all the exact same ways that you have. We have. He gets you. And here's what you need to hear this morning. He forgives you. That is our great God. That is Jesus the Christ, the Savior from our sins, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost. He is fully God. And He's born of the Virgin Mary, fully human. And He suffered under Pontius Pilate in your place. Friends, God initiated all of this from the foundations of the earth with you in mind. And he is not done with you yet. So this week, this week, I don't want you just to know about Jesus. This week, I want you to believe in Jesus, the God-man, your advocate. And I want you to live this week with God in confidence.